Welcome, everyone, to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderburg, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the lovely and talented John Cribs. How are you doing today, John? I'm doing fantastic, Chris. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm doing good now that I'm talking with you, now that we're on to record this. And uh, we should, you know, make no bones about it today. I will say, here's what it is. John, you had a very good idea. You sent me a text and said for the uh, uh, June podcast, do you want to do The Religion by Nicholas Condi, the book on which the John Schlesinger movie The Believers is based. The Believers is a, a notably weird 80s horror movie that you and I both have some measure of affection for, I think, and I... And, uh, and I'm like, oh, that's a strange movie when you try and remember pieces of it kind of way. I said, yeah, that sounds great. Let's read the religion. That will be a good idea. And, uh, and it was not. We never <laughs> intentionally read a book we think is going to be bad or that we're not going to like for this podcast. We don't do like, oh, so bad it's good type stuff. Uh, we try and read things that we genuinely have an interest in. And I've got to say up front, I found it almost fucking impossible to get through this book. I, I just, it was such a disastrous read. So I will throw it over to you, John. Now, do you want to provide a little context about this talk about this book that you forced me entirely against my will to read yeah well i will say that i've two things i'm proud of us for sticking with you know this idea of reading something new and not you know just sticking with favorites and exploring something that we've never read before and number two i'm also proud of us for sticking with the book we pick and not like bailing out of it halfway through and we're texting each other and saying jesus this is a slog which yeah. certainly was the case with this one. Which was so, definitely a lot of like, do you think it's actually possible to finish this book? Do you think that it's actually <laughs> literally possible to do? It, it was a chore. So that's my way of apologizing to everybody. But I think we still have some, you know, we, we took some stuff away from this book that I think would be worth talking about. But yeah, other than the Donald Westlake, which wasn't even bad, it just wasn't, you know, prime Westlake. It wasn't one of his best. Uh, I think this is the first... Yeah, this is this is the first one that we both genuinely didn't like. So we're so we're here to put the gree gree on the religion. <laughs> put our very tasteful voodoo curse on the religion. <laughs> I like the gree gree is like a term now that's almost playful, right? It's not even like it's not even slightly serious. Like there's no 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 ill intention behind it at all. At least that's what I understand. I've never lived in New Orleans myself. Anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> I have, and it, it is used playfully, although they, there's a lot of cultural stuff with New Orleans where to say it's played up for the tourists in a city where the tourist economy is such a part of it is, is dishonest. I don't want to parse that part of bullshit voodoo. This book has got its own complete separate brand <laughs> of bullshit from New Orleans. Yeah. So the religion by Nicholas Condy, who it turns out is actually two guys, two separate dudes. Yes, it's a pseudonym. Um, yeah, pseudonym for two fellas. Uh, even though at the end it claims Nicholas Condy is a journalist, a charter boat captain, and a farmer who lived in London and the Caribbean and New, New England and New York. Uh, turns out only some of that is true. Robert Nathan, uh, one half of Nicholas Condy, 
was a journalist who wrote for a lot of the the big papers and the big magazines and then became a tv writer and producer for law and order and er and made a film called lucky bastard which i haven't seen i have and not the, seen either and the other guy uh robert rosenblum uh, was a pretty prolific writer, uh, wrote eight books under his own name and then 17 more under various pseudonyms, ended up on the New York Times uh, bestseller list writing, I think, romantic uh, literature under a, a female name. Uh, and then they, they collaborated on this book and on two other books, The Legend and another one called In the Deep Woods, which has actually turned into a TV movie with uh, Rosanna Arquette that turned out to be Anthony Perkins' last film. So I'm kind of curious about that. What to happen for you to read the legend or in the deep wood. I think I'd have to be, (laughs) I would do it. uh, I definitely put up like a, you know, a GoFundMe or something to, you know, if people wanted to pay me to read them, (laughs) then maybe I would do it. (laughs) Maybe if someone, you know, paid me to write an article about the TV movie in the deep woods, I would be willing to go back and read the book. If we got like a GoFundMe or Kickstarter to read this, that money, like, I would actually start to feel worse and worse the higher the number value got. Like, if it got up to $100,000, I wouldn't be like, oh, my God, great, $100,000. I'd be like, oh, my God, I have to read these fucking books. I mean, I'm going to do it, obviously. I can't turn down that money. But this is, I can't believe I have to read them. I'd, I'd feel similar. Even if it was like a dollar per page, maybe we could talk. But I, I would definitely be feel guilty about it. Um, yeah. I mean, 20, yes. bu- 20 bucks, I'll fucking do it. What am I <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, The Believers, um, my, my childhood memory of The Believers was that I had an older friend whose house I would go to, and he had two posters in his bedroom. He had The Believers and The First Power, the uh, Lou Diamond Phillips movie. And both the posters oh, were very creepy looking you know uh posters so was that kid in a cult yeah right he's just into cult horror movies i guess was sort of his thing uh so growing up i i had more of a thought you know more of a memory of those posters than anything else until i finally saw the movies and first power ended up being uh pretty disappointing and unmemorable whereas uh the believers turned out to be a pretty creepy movie that i enjoyed so I was curious to see, you know, how the book kind of, uh, uh, what parts of the book sort of translate onto the screen and the creepy parts and everything. But to set more of a context of when this came out, because this book came out in 1981, I believe, uh, right at the boom of the literary horror explosion that uh, was obviously... Okay, so 82, so... And it was published in 83. Jesus Christ, I'm just going to keep pushing back. (laughs) We'll say early 80s. Written in 82, published in 83. Somewhere around there. But around that time is when all these new horror books were cropping up, an entire new genre it was starting. And a lot of people say, well, it was because of the popularity of Stephen King, which is definitely true. But more so, you go back to uh, the late 60s and early 70s when Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist are popping up on the uh, New York Times bestseller list. And these books obviously became very popular movies as well. Uh, And they kind of set the tone for the kind of plots that you're going to see over and over and over again in these horror paperbacks, which is the fear of conspiracy from the people in your life, the threat of home invasion, uh, family danger by something beyond your understanding. Yeah. Of weird things out in the world coming to get your kid. Exactly. And specifically like a religious threat. You know, all these heroes are non-believers or they're lapsed Catholics, you know, and they've, they're estranged from, 
the ethereal, the things that are beyond their understanding. And because of that, they're particularly susceptible to these evil things that come from, you know, uh, these faiths that people have developed cults around and have sort of developed conspiracies um, against this person who is not familiar with this thing. And because of that, I guess, not only are you getting tons and tons of horror paperbacks on the subject, but you're getting lots of 80s movies with voodoo as the topic. You're getting Serpent in the Rainbow. You're getting Angel Heart, which is based on um, Falling Angel, which is uh, one, of the, one of these books that comes out at this time. And even a little bit late in the 90s, you're getting Predator 2. You're getting Mark for Death, Child's Play, even Major League. You know, you're seeing voodoo pop up as this strange weird thing it's funny you know also just you mentioning angel heart 2 which has the groaning lewis cypher right thing (laughs) this also has the like bad guys in this book his criminal organization the acronym for it is like the like stands for the evil magic curse he wants to put on the world it's another like idiotic hiding in plain sight thing too Mm -hmm. Anyway, there's just something about that that seems perfect. Like this dumb, like, I'm Lou Cypher, and then the Ache, you know, <laughs> organization. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of, lot of drawing from the religious terminology in kind of silly ways, that, in ways that are, you know, kind of giving an exposition to these sinister arts and these magical, these black magic practices, but kind of setting them within the real world. So... To start off with, Chris, we like to give an aperitif to say what kind of book or movie, choose one that would uh, be a good thing to read or to watch before this book we're talking about. What's your pick for this one? Uh, And then you should mention afterwards that we do a dessert pairing as well, too. All right, let me do that over because that that sucks. Let me do that over. No problem. Is aperitif the right way to say it? Aperitif. 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 It doesn't matter. We're not French. Uh, But with that in mind, Chris, we do an aperitif and a dessert for all these selections. An aperitif to read or watch before this book that we're talking about, and then afterwards a dessert that you might want to follow it up with. So let me ask, what is your aperitif for the religion? Uh, I will pick a movie from 1990 from right around the time The Believers uh, uh, in 1987 was released that is exactly in that genre you're talking about and that I think is uh, an enjoyably cheeseball version of this, which is William Friedkin's The Guardian is my selection, which is also based on a... Uh, disreputable novel, although if my memory is correct, it's the novel doesn't have any supernatural element, right? Right. It's more like a, a stalker movie uh, novel, basically. It's like Hand That Rocks the Cradle more than it is the movie that got made. Yeah, more it. than it's about what else? Who are going to uh, the tree worshipping druid wood elf things that needs human sacrifices but it's about like like this it's about an ancient evil and it's gonna come get your baby and there's like a over sexualized woman who's the plot hinges on and um you know i i just think that this is this book in some way this book the 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 religion grows up to be the guardian in some way there's something about translating these books into these movies too that they always become these like 
very ludicrous versions of these things, uh, with the exception of like Friedkin's The Exorcist or something. I don't know. It just felt like this is the same sort of thing. But when we talk about this book being bad, I wanted to draw a distinction between enjoyably dumb and bad like The Guardian (laughs) and really hard to get through bad like The Religion. And what that's is a great, John? Uh, that's a great choice. I think uh, Dan Greenberg is the name of the guy who wrote The Nanny, which The Guardian is based on. And he also was a, you know, uh, New York intellectual uh, columnist, award-winning columnist. I think he was married to Nora Ephron for a while. Um, okay. So like the, like the guys who wrote this, he, I think, had sort of a similar background. Um, I'm, I'm going to pick uh, just a movie that uses voodoo and is much, much better. Uh, maybe that's not fair, but uh, I Walked with a Zombie, the Val Luton oh, Tourneau yeah. film, which appropriates the plot of Jane Eyre uh, set on the island of Saint, Saint Sebastian, where voodoo is something that's left over for bringing slaves to the island, which is, you know, stuff they talk about in this book. And then you also have a dead wife, or maybe she's not dead. We don't know. Uh, you have the figurehead from the slave ship that's so prominent. There's a lot of aspects of voodoo culture, like the character Carafor, who's the guardian of the crossroads. Um, one of the Pitro aspects of the spirit, Papa Legba in Haitian voodoo. Uh, they visit the Humphert, uh, the place where the voodoo worshippers gather. And uh, there's a lot of fun and enjoyable stuff in there, like the great Sir Lancelot singing the hit song, Shame and Scandal in the Family, that we love so much. That was uh, covered by Clint Eastwood. <laughs> was it really? Yeah, you've never heard the Clint Eastwood version? I know I know it's been covered a ton. I had no idea Eastwood did one. Um, this Walk with a Zombie is a fantastic, great movie. It's not one of my personal favorites of them, uh, of the Luton uh, films for RKO, but it's undeniably great and uh, definitely an interesting use uh, of voodoo within the story. So... The Religion is the story of Professor Calvin Jameson, whose wife, Cal. who's known as Cal, whose wife has died at age. Whose wife? Whose wife has what? We don't know what's happened to his wife. We're going to take <laughs> fucking forever to tell you what's happened to his wife. Who knows what might have crazy thing might have happened. Sorry, go on. We like to keep people in suspense. Um, unlike the movie, it takes, it takes its time letting you know that his wife died in a tragic toaster accident, which is... Hard to say with a straight face. And the movie builds it up like, or the book builds it up like, there's this great tragedy. You're never going to believe what happened. And then when it gets to it, you're like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And then there's a callback to it in the in the epilogue where his his new wife almost is almost dies in the same way, and she's like, no, it's a battery powered toaster or clock or whatever that is radio yeah radio oh my god sorry to interrupt i it will be hard for me to not interrupt incredulously no please the plot synopsis it's gonna you know delay me having to talk about this thing um so his wife dies in a tragic accident he is left a widower with his young son chris the two of them move to chelsea uh where are they living in new New mexico or something like that i can't remember yes they move to, to Chelsea in New York. They, uh, he's going to teach at Columbia. He has a Margaret Mead-type mentor who is... He's an anthropologist. He was uh, in yep. New Mexico studying Indian tribes. Right. And his, uh, so this 
world-famous anthropologist who's been his mentor, sets up a teaching job for him at Columbia, so they move there. He's going to finish his book. But uh, as soon as he's there, he finds himself drawn into the strange underworld of Santeria, the practice of voodoo within the city. Uh, and that happens because first he, uh, they find... What? What? It happens because he coincidentally comes across two different ritual sacrifice scenes. He yes. just walks up to them both times. Anyway, go on. Apparently, it's such a prevalent, uh, it's such a problem that walking, strolling in Central Park, you and your son are going to come upon mutilated turtles and cats and chickens. Uh, and mutilation. A week later, and a week later. Uh, you'll stumble upon a scene of uh, a child who's been uh, who's had his guts torn out in a ritualistic and uh, been murder. burned alive. Right, and isn't that what happens? Some now, to be fair, to be yeah. fair, they do make a case later saying that all this was inevitable; that the gods have set his path for him. Right, yes. so they said it, so he had to go and pick up his furniture from storage on this particular day when the cops were sectioning off this area and finding this body. So maybe it was all destined, and maybe that's why these insane coincidences are happening. Um, we should he, say that this, this book does, not to spoil it, I'm going to fucking spoil this book for you, everybody, and you should be happy. It seems to come down on the side of voodoo is definitely real and more powerful than Christianity, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you think that's a fair description of the book's ultimate perspective that voodoo is definitely real and definitely super powerful well i think that th their take on voodoo is, is interesting it's probably the most interesting thing about the book because the question then is throughout the whole book you have another thing these... wait real quick up front we're gonna okay santeria and voodoo and things like this this book has a real problem of offering up these like racist bastardized versions of these things. So whenever we use these words, we're just adopting the book's language. And we know in reality that these actual religious practices have jack shit to do with what we're talking about. Okay. Exactly. Exactly what I was going to get into, which is to say that it's appropriation of voodoo culture and everything like that. On the one hand, Cal, the main hero reacts to things with, paranoia and fear and is seemingly overreacting you know uh, in terms of like how dark and dangerous this thing is so throughout most of the book you're almost sort of thinking because he's constantly reassured by uh the priests that he meets or the practitioners of this religion that it's uh completely uh benevolent that there's nothing wrong with it that's not dangerous in any way but ultimately it is <laughs> So yeah. kind of have like a mixed signal here where on the one hand you're saying uh, they seem to be saying, hey, it's not this evil religion after all, but obviously for their story to be scary or to work in any way, it has to be. It has, you know, it has this, it reminded me of us just having read Pet Cemetery. this very, like the way Stephen King handles ancient Indian, like, magic iconography religious stuff this sort of like vaguely like overheard completely inaccurate sense of like ancient and powerful and of the earth and of earthy people sort of pre-civilized vision of what this stuff is that reminded me of Stephen King that also has a sort of tasteless take on Indian religion in in his books especially in Pet Cemetery. 
Yeah, well, it made me think of Pet Cemetery because early in the book, Cal is reading Bible stories to his son. And we were just talking on the episode with Wendy Mays about how Bible stories are terrifying and actually make for terrible bedside reading. And you actually see that in practice here when he reads in the story that you specifically brought up, the one of Abraham and Isaac and the idea of sacrificing your son. And his son has this terrified reaction of, you know, if God hadn't stopped him, would he have killed his son? And Cal tries to tell him, no, 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 he wouldn't have, Uh, which is, uh, which is not to be foreshadowing. Not the lesson (laughs) of the Bible. At all. At all. But obviously when your son, looks at you like, are you going to kill me, dad? You have to say, no, of course, Abraham wouldn't have done that. But uh turns out to be foreshadowing unless, for events later. Unless you have faith in your religion, in which case the answer is yes, because God commanded me to do it. And if you cannot reject your father and your mother and yea, your own heart, then you cannot walk with me. What is the exact line that Jesus gives? Yeah, this book definitely has a muddled sense of religion. It has a weird, that whole genre of 80s horror sort of springing out of Rosemary's Baby and the Exorcist have a weird metropolitan coastal flavor to them. They're very New York and Los Angeles-y. And this is a very like New York intellectual type book. It's all about this milieu of like people teaching at Columbia and being anthropologists and like rock star anthropologists like Margaret Mead. Uh, It's very strange. It's very strange uh, how stupid it is in that context as well. And I think ends up being an inadvertent reflection on that sort of New York intellectual world. Yeah. And sort of on just the, uh, the less the lesser parts of New York, the the low income parts of New York in general, my by far I think the worst passage ever. I wrote down this sentence was, at the corner of Ninth Avenue, he stopped outside an all night coffee shop. Bag ladies, drifters, winos, prostitutes, lost souls, all lingered hazily at the counter over dreams and coffee cups. Lonely drooping figures in harsh fluorescence. Yeah. And it's like, wow, what part of New York is that supposed to be? It's like this TV version of New York, you know, that it just doesn't for a second feel like someone who's actually walked the streets of New York. Uh, yeah. Someone who's so look, who looks at them, you know, through a, you know, the window of a penthouse more or less. Yeah. That seems very realistic. The part, the thing that struck me is when he first goes to Aceh and he sees the like teenage Mexican school schoolgirl dressed in, you know, a skirt below the knee and a button-down shirt. And then the guy who runs the place is like, "Did you know she used to be turning tricks thirty a day?" And it's like, "What? Like, do you actually think?" That's what's happening. Do you think the movie Angel is real? Is that, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, there's definitely... Hooker by day, hooker by night. Is, did, did you think that was a documentary, Nicholas Conde? Yeah, there's definitely a canon movies type approach to this stuff, like the scene where he's driving, you know, from his place in Chelsea uh, across town and then is shocked by how everything turns to complete poor area, you know, how everything looks disease-ridden and filthy all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, come on. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and I know New York was very, very different in the eighties, especially in the late seventies, early eighties. I understand how different it 
it was. And if it, you know, if I just didn't know because I wasn't there, that's plausible. But there's unquestionably something about this book that treats anybody who's not a Columbia University professor as an other and a weirdo and a creep or like just a loud mouth, like his sister-in-law. They're just, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody, everybody who isn't from the exact social standing of Cal is gross and weird and makes him uncomfortable and paranoid. There's, there's not like a person he runs into in this book that he doesn't, have a uh, like repulsed reaction to yeah yeah and a suspicion of immediately you know he just assumes everybody is in on a conspiracy to to get him which again is just sort of this mixed message where it's like right. <laughs> he seems like a complete idiot but at the end he's right he's been right all along you know everybody has been in on it yeah um John, do you want to talk about, in some concrete way, why this book is boring, how this book is boring and hard to get through? I think it's easy enough to level general accusations at a, at a book about being hard to read and hard to get through uh, and just sort of make jokes at his expense. But is there like some mechanical diagnosis we can do of how this book is boring? Well, besides the bad writing, like the sentence I just read, I would say that its main problem uh, and following around a really unlikable lead in Cal is that its use of of voodoo, there's tons and tons and tons of reading documents, reading diaries, and getting this information, which, you know, some of it's interesting, the idea of uh, voodoo being hidden within Catholicism, you know, back when it was uh, a religion that people were bringing from Africa but didn't want their white masters to know, you know. And then the, the saints basically have a corresponding deity in the religion. Things like this are interesting, except when there's 30 pages of it and it's not advancing the plot and it's not going to come back and be important in any way. It's obvious that I think these guys read up, you know, they did their research, they hit the books, they, yeah. you know, they found some cool words and then they inserted all of it into the story, but it's so academic that it is completely yeah, dull. It's, they're not even exposition dumps, they're research dumps written mm-hmm. by people who are clearly not experts. So it's just like Wikipedia articles inserted, but much longer like massive 30 page Wikipedia articles inserted into this book almost at random in the place of having a plot. Don't you? Yeah, I, I think exactly. I agree with that entirely. Um, To the point that you just know that the next chapter is actually not going to be revealing about the characters or where they're headed. It's just going to be, he goes to another place and learns another thing, and we pick up some more vocabulary. He goes to a party where everybody, you know, smokes cigars because the gods love the smell of cigars. And then we learn that, you know, there's possession involved. And it's just piling stuff on that should be compelling, but it's not made compelling by the writing because it's all, like you said, it's just research dump. It's just vocabulary being thrown at you. And it's never for it never for a second feels like you're actually experiencing this organically with any of these characters. That's definitely there's not a, not a single good character in the book. There is no character that is well drawn or interesting in any way. 
Yeah, the love interest, uh, Tori, might be the worst written character I think I've ever read in a book. I, I, it's she's just incoherently written. She's she's the traditional uh, damsel in distress type character who just has whatever she needs to do to serve the plot. That's what she does, and yeah. that's it. And it, her entry again her entry into the story where you can say it's preordained by the gods. It's one of those things that's very, it just feels lazy. This whole, the whole book is powered by coincidence and, and powered by how feeling driven to do this. And if we don't feel driven to do this with him and we don't, it's just him wandering from place to place, reading thing to thing. And it, and it's, punishing it's punishing because mm-hmm. it's bad writing it's punishing because it, there's too many words in each paragraph every paragraph needs to be half as long as it is everything needs to be shorter i have the paperback right here in front of me from the believers re, uh, release of it republishing of it where it's 377 pages long it's damn near 400 pages it is it is a book that could be 110 pages long easily it could be a novella and be much much more possible to read i don't want to say better but if it were 120 pages you could read it without wanting to blow your brains out without a doubt i mean the the cop character that he occasionally Uh, reports to is so standard i mean it doesn't surprise me that one of these guys ended up writing for law and order you think what's known, you know what's going on in the city? There's crazy things happening downtown that you don't know about. And there's a whole, yeah, there's a whole segment where the cop, you know, decides to grill him. So he like puts him in a car and takes him to his home in New Jersey. And they're just kind of in his house and he's staring him down. And then he drives, and then he leaves. That's the end of that. And it was like, why do we need this scene? What is this scene here for? It gets to the point where the cop is so cardboard and one-dimensional that at the end we learn that he dies and we have no idea was it <laughs> was it involved did it was it because he was killed did they put a spell on him we don't know and frankly we don't care yeah this book has a lot of it's supposed to be vague in a like maybe it's a spell that did it kind of way too that's why i'm mm-hmm. talking about the coincidence and you're saying the gods preordained it there's a lot that happens in this book that is not compelling that's not driven forward by the narrative and i think it wants to be moody and create a state where you're saying huh, is it the spell driving it all and the, and the way it uses a spell too it doesn't mean like you cast one spell to do one things a spell is like an all-encompassing like cloud of magic, right? That Mm -hmm. affects a bunch of different people in a bunch of different ways. And so it just feels like it constantly falls back on wanting the mood to be, hey, it was the spell. The way I guess you can see in Rosemary's Baby or something like that, well, what is like Rosemary's Baby? In the film of Rosemary's Baby, where there's just a mood built of the paranoia where every single thing, not much happens in that movie, but everything just builds the mood so uh, suffocatingly that minor things are oppressive and gripping, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. The idea of how this one is supposed to work, where everything is potentially the work of black magic. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it just feels like it loses the thread. Well, I think too that there's just nothing compelling enough to make you care. I think in Rosemary's Baby, you know, you care about what's going on with her body, what's going on with her baby. You understand that she's going through what a lot of uh, pregnant women go through in terms of discomfort and paranoia and fear about what's going on with her, that this completely new feeling, and it is perfectly woven into this story about conspiracy and things stacking up against her behind the scenes. With Cal, he lost his wife, you know, he's a widower, he's worried about his son, but it never really registers because it's he becomes so interested in the religion he's doing so much he's hitting the books he's doing so much research that there's never that human thing that you can cling on to with this character there's never a real reason to care about what he's doing or where he's going to be going i think it's funny when i first started reading it you know we just read pet cemetery which is about you know a kid dying who's like my kid's age and it's about you know somebody losing their son and i hated it reading it as a parent when i started this one it's it's about an eight-year-old named chris who's going to (laughs) and i was like oh no that's my you know my son's first name is chris oh no i'm gonna this is gonna be another one that's impossible for me to read but it had no effect like that yeah nothing about this book upset me as a parent and just just to uh, point out too, I love investigation horror stories. They're my like my favorite kind of horror stories. I love when someone's trying to figure out what's going on. And the example we gave before, Falling Angel, the William uh, Georgeberg novel that became Angel Heart, is a good example of like the detective story married to the horror story. Yeah. Uh, or Sellers by John Shirley, which is a better version of this story. Um, one of which there's this uh, malevolent deity this destructive spirit that is causing things to happen in New York. Yeah. Or ninth um, gate. yeah. Ninth gate. Sure. Yeah. There are so many good examples. And uh, so I should be compelled by all the things that he's discovering and all this research that's been put into the book, but the writing is so bad and it's so late belabored and so, so much extra stuff thrown in that it's just, it's unpleasantly heavy. You know, it's too academic it's just it's just a slog there's just no other way to describe it and there's nothing to hang your hat on although i should say late in late in the book uh and it's interesting because the movie which i enjoy the stuff that i enjoy in the movie is all here in the book but it doesn't um it just handles it in a different way john schlesinger is a better filmmaker than than the you know, duo of Nicholas Conde are writers. Um, Absolutely. We'll get into the movie in just a sec. We're, I think we should definitely discuss the movie. Um, but let me say one thing unique to the book that's not in the movie that I did that I did enjoy and I kind of wanted to hear more about. This idea that when he finds out that what the plot is, why these uh, children's bodies are being found all around town, is that it's actually the quote-unquote good version of voodoo. You know, the... Um, uh, the Santeria, the worship of the saints, it's those guys, the good believers who are doing the sacrificing because they believe that they have to uh, sacrifice seven children to stop a cataclysmic, cataclysmic disaster. That uh, there was a ritual that was interrupted in the 30s and it's indicated that's why World War II and the Holocaust happened, etc. 
um, that the dark forces of uh, voodoo want to stop these horrific mutilations of children from happening because they would prefer that the cataclysmic thing happen and, you know, that everybody suffers. So it sort of takes on a needs of the many, needs of the few sort of theme towards the end. That's something that I think could have been interesting, but really all it led to was this take shelter kind of ending where, again, there's this ambiguous thing that, oh, I guess he shouldn't have saved his son because now something terrible has happened and millions of people are apparently going to die. Yeah, we're going to get the uh, the emergency test signal beep on the radio. Oh, it is a radio she's fucking around with. Right. That's how we know that's the lead into it. Uh, I will say that in the book, the, the book is where the openings, it's the very first scene. I didn't watch the movie again for this, but it's the very first scene of The Believers, right? Where she electrocutes herself. She's standing in in spilled milk and touches the toaster and gets electrocuted. Mm-hmm. And that's that's from the book. The book really brings it out, though. He's blaming himself for her death, right? And you're like, what could he possibly, what could have happened? To a point where you think like it was a drunk driving accident or he accidentally shot her or something, mm-hmm. you know? And then when it's that, it's insane. It's an insane accidental death and one that he should obviously not feel any guilt for. And then the other famous thing in the movie is the spider face, which is taken from the book as well. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two main things that they kind of took from it. Although, the way, uh, you, like you said, the way Schlesinger sets it up in the very first scene of the movie, he draws he draws it out really beautifully. Where first you see Cal jogging, and you see like the milk delivery guy uh, passing him and doing his deliveries, and there's all this buildup where you're like, why are we following this milk that's going to their house and then going into their refrigerator? So yeah. that when the milk spills on the floor and she steps in it kind of becomes this beautiful series of events of thi- uh, leading up to this really horrific scene. Where it's, the, like, it's like something the, out of fucking Final Destination. Really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Where the son and the, the husband have to watch. They can't touch her because she's, you know, full, full of juice, full of electricity. They just have to stand there and watch their mother and wife die. It's really horrifically done. And then there's a nice little wrapper at the end, too, where you see uh, Milk at his new house is like his new, you know, country house that he's happy at but this little reminder of this horrible thing that happened. And then he turns and looks at the camera and says, breast milk, right? Is that, am I remembering the end of the movie wrong? <laughs> You're thinking of John Schlesinger's other film, Darling, that has breast milk as a, a thing. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I that was um, totally into, that was a Darling joke I was making. Oh, nice, nice. Completely intentional, completely intentional, not a ridiculous. But the movie was adapted, the book was adapted for the movie by Mark Frost. um, Yes. Who many people will know as the co-writer of one of the great franchises, the first two Fantastic Four movies. (laughs) I, um, this is the reason I saw The Believers when I was a kid. I think a lot of cinephiles, especially ones our generation, our age, you know, headed into their 40s, went through a like, well, David Lynch is a genius and Twin Peaks is genius. I'm going to watch everything Mark Frost has ever done too, since he co-created Twin Peaks. And that was the kind of, you know, maybe Storyville. That's how we all saw Storyville, I was going to say. (laughs) This is the same, this was the same uh, look-see into the career of Mark Frost, uh, sort of (laughs) proving once and for all that Twin Peaks belongs to David Lynch. Because of my Twin Peaks fandom, I had the, the list of seven, his occult mystery novel on my bookshelf, although I don't think I ever actually read it. 
although you know what you know what the other you know with the believers what the uh the big uh uh david lynch connection would be besides mark frost robert loja oh yeah <laughs> mr eddie himself <laughs> exactly playing playing a very he plays the generic cop right from the book and totally robert loja's it up is it like robert loja totally <laughs> totally everybody everybody is is improved you know in this movie from what they're in the book you know martin sheen is a is a great actor uh his career decisions notwithstanding he seems like somebody who did not pick good parts ever but he's a phenomenal actor and he really uh fleshes out cal in a way that he isn't in the book and it's hard and it's hard not to picture martin sheen when you're reading the book there's nothing in the book that resists you transposing martin sheen onto it yeah well there's even a part where chris the son runs into traffic because he's freaking out and it is a horrific moment you know it's so much more you feel that what you were talking about that moment where you should be your gut should just feel tight because you're so nervous for what's going to happen to this kid that you don't get from the book at all yeah um but there's lots of great parts like that there's jimmy smith's freaking out and stabbing his guts out yeah um i think it's that it's my favorite jimmy smith's role even more than his star wars role (laughs) i know it's tough competition (laughs) i know i know it's controversial to say the one in which he gets to go bananas is his best role when after he is, you know, freaked out and tried to stab his guts and, and died, and then they go to the morgue to see his body, he shows them the bowl of uh, innards that have the snakes slithering around in them, and it's just, oh, it's disgusting. Yeah. We should also mention that this, this movie was shot by Robbie Mueller as part of his great 80s run, mm-hmm. uh, where he basically shot nothing but masterpieces and the believers no where he he mainly shot you know he was working with he shot to live and die in la he was shooting some like down by law he shot they all laughed he was doing incredible work he shot barfly i think the same year as the believers right i believe so in paris texas yeah great run. yeah paris texas is right before it just an amazing and body rock who can forget body rock of course <laughs> an amazing an amazing run uh, from Robbie Mueller, and it looks great. It does. Yeah, it not- does look great. The uh, the big scene at the end, the big ceremony where they're going to sacrifice the boy that takes place at uh, uh, construction site, like you know the the uh, interior of a building that isn't finished, yeah. where they have all the followers just wrapped around, you know, this uh, unfinished building, staring down at it. It's very effective. And uh, Richard Mazer to the rescue. I enjoy that aspect <laughs> of it as well. Uh, the dad from License to Drive coming to save the day. <laughs> uh, but then you got Harris Eulen singing Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater in the elevator while he's holding the, 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 na- the almost naked boy next to him. It's like, what is this? What's going on? This is creepy as shit. Yeah. It, just, it taps into a creepiness that this book completely lacks. Yeah. The movie's got a lot of personality. And I used to, I used to think of the movie as being, wow, it's crazy that all of these talented people would make this very like absurd and idiotic movie in some ways, but you read the book and it's all of the weirdness of the movie feels more like the expression of interesting artists 
more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Even when it's wrongheaded, it feels like interesting people trying to do something with this desperately uninteresting book is what feels like the way this movie happened, the way it happened. You sort of have a like, what were they thinking when you watch the movie, right? I think it's a reaction to it. And you read the book and you're like, oh, that's what they were thinking. They were thinking, I'm John Schlesinger. I want to make something more interesting than this fucking terrible paperback, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because Roger Ebert, who hated the movie and panned it, when he seemed to have an offensive, you know, he seemed to be offended by the depiction of voodoo in the film. Which is kind of why this, yeah, it is. Although I will say, uh, Mark Frost changing it up so that it's a bunch of fucking. Uh, white politicians and rich people using this, you know, the magic of this religion for their own ends. And so yeah. it's not about, a, a, you know, averting an apocalypse, but it's about them getting what they want by sacrificing this kid. Obviously, you're more invested in them stopping that sort of thing from yeah. happening. And in and fact, my, of- my aperitif was almost woofing because I was thinking about, oh, it's like the business people bringing out the horror. And it's like, oh, but that's not the book. That's the movie. I can't pick that for my aperitif. Anyway, go on. My other aperitif was New Nightmare, just because that's uh, another example of a better, a more compelling story about a mother trying to protect her son when yeah. weird shit's going on around him in the city, you know? Yeah, and has a dream-like uh, atmosphere that it coasts on, especially the first half is very creepy. Just the kid in the park when he gets up on like the playground equipment, that's the kind of creepiness this book needs that it doesn't have. It doesn't have any creepiness. It somehow makes burned children's bodies not creepy. Yeah, and spiders coming out of somebody's face just seem ho-hum. Yeah, it's amazing because in the movie, that's very memorable. What happens to the the woman, the female lead in this, in the book and the movie is she gets like a pimple on her face that from the spell again, that she thinks is the result of it. And it pops open and baby spiders come running out all over her face. It's horrifying. It's a famous, you know, uh, urban legend. It's a famous urban legend. So it's not even something original that the writers of the book came up with. But in the book, it's it, this is a book that wastes so much time and takes too long going over everything. The whole spider face thing is done in three sentences. It's mm-hmm. crazy how much it lingers on other shit. And then the spider face stuff, which is one of its few genuinely memorable moments is a matter of of sentences and then they take her to the hospital and the fucking doctor's reaction in the hospital of like oh yeah this happens a lot especially to people in south america they get the spider face bug bites it's like what doctor is having no goddamn reaction to that (laughs) you know you just gotta be prepared for spider face bug bites and the lead up to that too uh, this is another connection to Pet Cemetery. Is a scene where they're breaking into a cemetery that seems to take eighty pages. <laughs> yes, like Pet Cemetery. Exactly. Um, another interesting thing about the movie. I don't know if you know about Adolfo Costanzo from the late '80s in Mexico. I do. Oh, yes, I do know about this. Would you like yeah. to talk about this? So he was a basically he was a drug lord, right? He had a what he what was basically a cult, but really a bunch of drug dealers that he ran with this uh, other woman named uh, Sarah Aldretti. They were called the uh, Los uh, Narcosatanicos, 
and they were the El Padrino and La Madrina of the cult, the godfather and godmother of the cult. Uh, they ended up indulging in several ritualistic killings, which included that of an American student, which they believe were going to protect their, their drug business. Um, so they killed, uh, I think, a dozen people this way. And supposedly, the creepy thing about it is Constanzo uh, supposedly made all of his followers, his members of his uh, drug cartel, watch the believers. Yes. They, um, and the, I, I thought it was also the, the woman, the Sarah Aldretti, that's her name, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That she was the one who was like really fucking into the believers, that she yeah. was like a believer super fan. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, she was the one who was guiding a lot of the Santeria stuff um, where he just probably would have been a regular narco without the influence uh, of it that she was the she was like the high priestess of it right yeah right she was the yeah the influential and uh, supposedly in this kind of art imitating life imitating art situation I think they were the uh, basis of uh, Romeo Dolorosa and Perdita Durango in uh, Barry Gifford's novel Fifty Nine yes. Raining yes. And I think that's how I had heard of them. Have you ever seen a photo of of him? I have seen. He's yeah. got like he's got he's, he's very nerdy looking guy. Yes, he, he looks like Skippy from Family Ties. That's with perfect. Like a, yeah. with like a mullet. <laughs> he's like there's something that's very. I always thought they should cast like Crispin Glover as him. In a movie. <laughs> he looks. He's. They're like dorks. They're like black magic witchcraft dorks who were actual fucking murderers and real narcos. But uh, yeah, not, I, not I, at all creepy and uh, uh, charismatic like Avia Bardem, who played the character <laughs> based on him in Perdita Durango. And uh, and um, fucking nothing like Isabella Rossellini or uh, Rosie Perez either. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I completely forgotten about that until you brought that up just now. Well, that's an interesting thing because, you know, everyone just assumes that there are all these voodoo cults and everything who do human sacrifices. And it's, there's been no evidence of that throughout the years. The other, the other true crime thing that I always think about is the Clementine uh, Baron bet uh, in Louisiana and Texas at the beginning of the 20th century. I don't know those. Uh, that was 35 people were killed, uh, brained by an ax. Entire families, you know, like, like five people at a time would be found killed. Um, with you know messages on the wall sort of like the manson killings where it would be like bible passages psalms and things like that uh signed by someone called the human five which everyone is uh which somehow the, the papers got a hold of and turned it into this cult called the church of sacrifice that they say was run by a voodoo priestess named clementine Berenbot, who ended up getting uh going to jail for the the crimes but then they ended up having to let her go because there was no evidence linking her to it whatsoever basically the press had just built up this this narrative so effectively that everyone just assumed that she had to have done it even though there was nothing specifically you know uh, suggesting that at all yeah Yeah, linking it to these oh that's interesting i've never never heard of those well that's certainly horrifying john Mm -hmm. yeah no there are a lot of uh ones yeah there are a lot of true crimes that you know at first everyone assumes that it's some sort of a cult or and then, of course, the Manson killings happened, and that didn't help anything. Then everything had to be a cult killing, and everything had to be yeah. uh, coming from some dark ancient yeah. religion. Like what happened to that poor Jeffrey McDonald, according to Errol Morris. Exactly. And a real-life cult showed up saying acid is groovy, kill the pigs, and uh, killed his family that he had been abusing for years. 
Uh, so anything else we have to say about the religion by Nicholas Conde, or do you want to get into our desserts? Do we, do we want to talk a little bit about this film's depiction of, of uh, as it, the film, just where the book sits as urban horror, where it's situated within urban horror and specifically how urban horror plays off of uh, paranoia of others in a way that I find really unseemly compared to rural horrors, um, paranoia and fear of uh, the unknown out in the woods. Fear of the unknown feels Mm -hmm. like one thing. In the city, fear of the unknown manifests itself as fear of like brown skin people yeah um, how that genre relies on that and how that's something that one of the reasons i hated reading this book too is its thoughtless perspective uh as an urban horror book where the paranoia really is about uh people homeless people the people that live in the subway, the cannibals. Exactly. And the shuds and the dirty, grimy people that are down below us somehow, that are usually um, subterranean. Or like in Wolfen, they live in the part of town that is knocked down but needs to be regentrified, right? Mm-hmm. That, that that's what urban horror films are about and urban horror uh, novels and films have a tendency to be stoking this paranoia. That's the fear of the other and the other stands in for um, really downtrodden things, right? Unfair Absolutely. Targets. targets that feel gross in comparison to... Yeah, the- that more so that passage that I read, you know, about the the pimps and the, and the uh, winos. Yes. And, 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 and about going from one part of town into another, maybe not so much, you know, that wasn't an actual thing, but just to have this kind of gross white perspective of the poor minority areas being completely distrustful of them and thinking that it is this wasteland of crime and vice is just not a pleasant thing. Not not a pleasant perspective, not one that I want to be in. Yeah. It feels like it's stoking the same fears as Death Wish 3, you know? Absolutely, yes, yes. It feels very much like it's stoking that if you step outside, you're going to be stabbed to death by somebody in a headband, you know? Yeah. Uh, very much that, that sense of, you know, the subways being the murder train, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Where if you go anywhere but the Upper West Side of Manhattan, boy, you're just in for... You know, the schoolgirls are turning 30 tricks a day. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the world outside of the world he's in. And, and, if, and if you find a black man who seems like he's very responsible, that he is proactive, uh, turning the community around and, you know, putting these people right, don't worry, he's a head of a cult that wants yeah. to kill your son. <laughs> Definitely the villain. Definitely the villain. If you meet one of the good ones who's well-spoken, they're the biggest villain of all. Not to mention that, you know, like an influential thinker and writer who, you know, has a very open mind about different cultures and wants to report uh, on, on, on places around the world is also involved. Yeah. <laughs> is also been turned by this wicked religion and these, these people. And also her writing is like this gross, like they're just more in tune with their sex too. Sex doesn't, 
they're not all hung up on sex. Even teenagers have sex in other cultures. It's like her whole thing is so gross. <laughs> Which I know is it's influenced by like the dumbest possible read on Margaret Mead, but still it's 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 gross. It's gross. And I was trying to think, let me before we go into the dessert, can you think of a truly great urban horror film that's like on or horror novel that's on the level of of the greats that's on the level of texas chainsaw massacre well rosemary's baby is a great urban horror yes it is without a doubt without a doubt and i and it also functions by who are the villains Mm -hmm. the people within her own culture the rich people the failed actors the moneyed people who are living in that fucking building of course they're the villains. That's why it works better, too. Absolutely. It's the people in your own building mm-hmm. you need to be afraid of. Your Can own you people. Exactly. Can you think of another? <laughs> I mean, I think that's absolutely what the religion wanted to be. But by introducing this, this otherness into it as the absolute villain, you completely lose that. Yeah. And having no reason to introduce it, he's, he's paranoid. He's just compelled by it. You know, it's, it's, this book is spending a lot of time with someone who's incredibly racist and paternalistic and doesn't understand that they are. Mm-hmm. I hated it. I hated this fucking book, John. <laughs> thumbs down on this book. I give it two thumbs down. John, how many thumbs down do you give it? Uh, let's move on to desserts and I'll stop being a fucking idiot. <laughs> what is your choice for the dessert? Uh, so yeah, good. just what we were talking about—a better version of this, uh, and definitely an influence. I'd be shocked to hear that the, the authors weren't familiar with this. Would be Peter Straub's Julia, uh, which is which also opens with a tragic accidental death of a loved one in front of the main character, uh, and then immediately goes into a scene at a park where they find mutilated animals, specifically a turtle. Uh, but uh, is a, a story mainly about turtle. <laughs> mainly a story about uh, this uh, grieving woman who is trying to uh, trying to reconnect with her daughter, not specifically the daughter as a ghost, but finds this other entity that she finds a connection with because of this grief that she's going through. Uh, it was also made into a movie with Mia Farrow called Full Circle, which I'm also uh, would recommend as part of this dessert selection uh, because it makes a lot of the same good changes and interesting variations on it that I think the believers does with the religion. Um, but even the, but the books are Wait, definitely, it's, it's, isn't the movie called the haunting of Julia? It is also known as the haunting of Julia, although it's original title is full. Oh, Circle. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I, I feel like I've seen this movie, but I, I didn't at any rate. But, but, e- but even just looking at the book, um, which is separated into three chapters, right? The initiate, the spell and the possession, yeah. Julie is separated into three chapters, the haunting, the search, and the closing. So I, I think just these guys definitely were attuned to this successful book and wanted to do something similar. So this is a better version of it. Yes. I am going to give you something light and delicious for this to go off on. Uh, it's a movie about creepy other you have a very well-spoken, seemingly nice guy who's involved in a cult and ritual human sacrifices. You have an endangered kid 
this one probably about 10 or 11 years old, and you have one Dr. Indiana Jones coming to his rescue. Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom is the movie <laughs> you should watch after this, especially if you really enjoyed uh, its depiction of brown people. It's just being inherently gross and creepy. <laughs> At least Temple of Doom tries for some hilarious physical comedy. Yes, and I would also say, if you feel like, God, Tori, she's not a very well-drawn character, <laughs> I wish I wish, like she were funny, like constantly trying to be funny and involved in all kinds of hilarious hijinks. Then we got Willie for you. I think I, I think that show. I think Tori was we'll one hanging a bat up like it's a towel away from winning my heart. <laughs> exactly. No, no. You'll eat those words for wishing Julia was a better character, had more had more to do, quote unquote. <laughs> you will eat those words if you watch Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Uh John? Would you like to do the outro? Do you have anything to say to my selection? I think uh, yours was great. I know uh, it's spot on. I think even the uh, the facade when they arrive at Pencott Palace and uh, everyone's acting like, what cult? What are you talking about? That's old ancient stuff. We don't yeah. sacrifice humans anymore. Uh, we help poor people here. Yeah, exactly. How dare you suggest that we would ever do anything in this day and age? That's That's disgusting. And then but bang. We okay, we do have a giant temple, fire temple in the basement where we sacrifice people. But I'm just saying Are they trying to bring on the apocalypse with the Sankara stones? Is my only question. I think they are, right? Otherwise what the fuck do they need them for? Un uh, unconfirmed. Unconfirmed what they <laughs> what their plans are with those stones. I would um, like to say I Indiana Jones, the only way you could improve Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in comparison to the religion is if you had Kate Capshaw die in a puddle of milk while fucking with a toaster. It's the only thing <laughs> that could that could be imported from I'll, I'll never be able to watch it again now I'll be <laughs> fantasizing about that scene that doesn't uh, exist and, the, and like the, the spider face stuff and like the grossness with like put your hand in the hole and the things are squirming around on it and the snakes and everything it has a similar oh yeah and he at the end Cal gets possessed They try the, 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 the god tries yes. to possess him Chango tries to possess him just like Indy is possessed by the, the black magic the blood the mad yeah exactly exactly the and the kid and the kid and the woman are like what's up Indy and both of them what's up mm -hmm. Cal yeah they're also both named after states California and Indy <laughs> this is this is a there's a perfect perfect pick. selection <laughs> this is a perfect and logical selection oh, I love it um hopefully our next book will be better but uh i'm not i'm not wagering on it but i think it'll be fun uh in anticipation of the summer release of tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood we are going to be discussing the first mashup of fiction and the charles manson crimes it is columbo the helter skelter murders by william harrington is it based on, uh, is it a Columbo continuation novel? Like the Columbo Absolutely. TV? It is our first foray into the TV spinoff paperbacks. This came out years after the show. It's its own thing, but it puts Columbo squarely in history in 1969 after the Tate LaBianca murders. So it is. Columbo. So taste-wise. <laughs> you, might, you might think that's fire and ice. 
but don't you want to see fire and ice come together? Don't you want to see the steam that comes off? Uh, according to Pulitzer Prize winning columnist Jack Anderson is as terrifying as Silence of the Lambs. So I think with that to go on, we, we have a Who lot to look argue? forward to. Who can I, argue? I wouldn't argue with Jack Anderson, would you? Uh, no, just on principle, I wouldn't. Just on because, principle. Because if this isn't a great book, his name is not Jack Anderson and he never won the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> um, is there, we should compile a list too of our favorite Manson inspired fiction as well. Like sure. fictive Manson bullshit. I feel like 90% of the talk is going to be about just Manson and Vincent Bugliosi and all that stuff. I know the bug. Oh, good to talk the about. Bug. Yes. I was going to say, maybe we should go, I'll probably reread Helter Skelter just to reread it while we're doing it. Because I need to, I read that every every couple years, every seven or eight years. I read Helter Skelter and I'm due for it. It's a good policy. <laughs> is it? Is it? Yeah. Or is it contributing to my malformed psyche? John, this was fun to talk about. I will, uh, we will do this again in one month. We will. Until then, have a great time, everybody. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers.